Hey, it's Sass Snacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sass Snack Files. This week, I'm discussing 407 down the rabbit hole. But before I get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sass Snack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sass Snack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 6 and 7 and Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 407 Down the Rabbit Hole. It's been a hot minute, but I have caught up on everything I need to catch up on. The writing portion of my book is done, so we're moving on to final edits and formatting and cover design, all of that fun stuff, but that's not nearly as time-consuming and mentally draining as the actual writing. So I'm happy to be back with you guys. My return to the microphone did get delayed a little bit longer because I just got back from Scotland and I figured it would be a tease to just start for one episode and then leave you guys hanging for another week and a half while I went on vacation. So I just put it off a little bit more, but here I am. I'm ready to break down down the rabbit hole for you and I am so excited. This episode is kind of a controversial one. I think probably because it is such a huge departure from the books in a lot of respects. The Roger stuff comes straight out of the books, but all of the Brie stuff is complete departure. So I am looking forward to breaking that down for you guys a little bit. So without further ado, let's get into it. I feel like the primary objective of this episode was to serve as a way to flesh out some of our lesser characters, two of which being Frank and Leary. I felt that This episode really centered around them, which is kind of an odd combination. I mean, ideally, we would like to say that it was to develop Brianna and Roger's character a little bit more because we're getting ready to see a whole lot more of them throughout the rest of the series. So they kind of wanted to give the viewers an opportunity to learn more about who these characters are. And I think for Brie, that was probably the case. We did learn a lot more about Brie as a character, but Roger really wasn't in this episode very much. I think he had four scenes, five scenes. So yeah, I can't really say that it did a lot to develop Roger's character. All it really did was pull some scenes out of the book that otherwise probably would have got cut completely. But this episode really just threw the book out the window. I know one of you commented, did they even read the book before they wrote this episode? (laughs) A lot of people felt the same way. I don't think you're alone in that. But that being said, I don't feel like it was a bad episode either. I feel like this was a very polarizing episode within the Outlander verse in that you either liked it or you didn't. There aren't a lot of fence sitters. The uh, other episode right off the top of my head that I can think of that was like that is Better to Marry Than Burn in season five. So won't get into that too much. But yeah, that's another one of those episodes. Me, I I feel like 
and I know I've said this before, but I, I have the, the ability to kind of draw a line in the sand and allow my brain to be like, okay, we're going to talk about the show and then, okay, we can look at the book. I can see both sides of it. I think that it was a great episode. Honestly, I thought that it did a lot for the characters that were there. A lot of people didn't like it because it wasn't a Jamie and Claire centric episode. But you know what? If you're going to continue to watch this series, that's something that you're going to have to get used to because as we come down to the wire and as we get into what's going to amount to season six and seven, they're going to be in it less and less if they stick true to the books, which so far they have. I think that season five does a great job of kind of evening it out and we get a, a look at everybody as it as it is. But for this episode, I thought that... Yes, they probably did take creative liberty a little bit too far because there are a lot of good things in the books that got cut in lieu of this episode, which I think probably 10% of this episode is from the books and the rest of it is just kind of thrown in there. But when you look at it just from a show watcher's perspective, that stuff that they did throw in is really great. Mainly, we get to see the relationship between Frank and Bree, which I... I didn't mind that because throughout the series, we get a lot of, oh, Brie and Frank were so close. Brie really loved her father. Frank was such a great father to Brie, but then we don't see it. Well, this was our chance to see it and to understand the grief that Brie experiences and how she's torn later on in season four as she gets to know Jamie because... She feels like she's betraying Frank in a way by accepting Jamie as her father and getting to know him. So I think it was important to have these scenes here where we see how close they were and how much they meant to each other. Also, honestly, it, it helps develop Frank's character a little bit more in that we see what that distance and kind of irksome behavior that Frank was having towards Claire in season three was all about. He'd just discovered this obituary. He'd learned that Claire goes back to Jamie. After everything that Claire and Frank have been through, it was all for nothing. And so he knows that one of two things happen. Either he dies or they get divorced. And one thing that is kind of left out of the series that I felt like if we had had more of that detail in this episode, it would have given context to a lot of the things that we were seeing. But I know I've touched on it a little bit in that Frank prepares Brianna to go back to the past. He teaches her how to shoot. He teaches her how to ride horses. He teaches her survival skills. By the time we roll around to this in the show, we're thinking, hey, they didn't really make Brianna look super smart in that respect. I mean, she had a flimsy little skirt and like she was not prepared to be going to Scotland in December or wherever, whenever this was. Um, no wonder she almost froze to death, honestly. And I feel like the brief from the books never would have done that. That was a not so good move on them. And I get it. They had to have a reason for Larry to come into the picture. But it doesn't do a lot for our interpretation of Bree's character. And I feel like if if they had included all of this into the context of Bree and Frank's relationship, then that final scene, that payoff at the docks when Bree sees Frank standing there and he gives her this nod and smile would have made a little more sense because in a way he knew that it was a very good possibility that she would go back one day. 
and that this was the culmination of everything that he prepared her for. So while we get that scene at the end and she's clearly thinking of her father as Lizzie's telling her father goodbye, it didn't really have the same punch or impact for me because we didn't have all of that background information as TV viewers. That being said, all of the other stuff that we had in this episode was absolutely fantastic. The scene where Brie comes in and Frank is drunk because he's just discovered the obituary and he doesn't really know where to go from here. I thought that was great. Tobias Menzies really brings this depth to Frank's character that it's really, it punches you in the gut, I guess, is the best way to describe it because he makes Frank relatable. And that's one thing that we don't really have in the books. Frank is not a relatable character. It was good to see that, but also frustrating as shit. And I know I've talked about this before, but the idea, like the double standard here in that Frank makes Claire swear she won't look for Jamie and then clearly goes behind her back and looks for Jamie. I just, I can't abide that. Like, don't tell her that she's got to move on and not be stuck in the past, but then you're going to go and find out what happens and then not tell her. Like, I understand why he didn't tell her because he was afraid that she would go back to Jamie and he would lose her and Bree. But if Claire can't know, then at least do her the common courtesy of not searching yourself. Yeah, maybe we can make the argument that, well, he wanted to know if she was telling the truth. Well, clearly she was telling the truth. And whether she was telling the truth or not, I mean, her grief was genuine over the loss of Jamie. He had to have at least been able to see that. Why couldn't he just be there for Claire, help her through whatever she was going through and leave it at that? Like, why did he have to drudge up all of this stuff and keep more secrets? So that that's very frustrating to me. I'll get off my soapbox now because I know you guys probably don't want to hear me vent about that. Um, but that is one of the things that I despise most about show Frank and book Frank, to be honest. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of things that I don't like about book Frank. And I know that some of you book readers out there are going to be like pointing your finger at me and you don't know half of it yet. Like Diana's just keeping secrets from us and I'm sure she is. And look, I will be happy to take it all back if I feel like his story was justified after I read it. But until then, I'll keep my own counsel. <laughs> but honestly, Tobias and Sophie Skelton, they have this really great way of playing the bond. I'm so glad that we get to see it because he treats her like an adult, which is something that I feel like a lot of children don't get from their parents. And I think that's probably why Frank and Brie have a stronger bond, a stronger connection than Claire and Brie, or at least one of the reasons, because Frank treats Brie as an equal. And I can't say that Claire entirely treated Brie as an equal. At least she does now, like in the series as we're seeing it, like late in season four and into season five and further on. But she never really treated her daughter as her equal. She treated her daughter as her child. And while that's valid in some circumstances, it doesn't necessarily help to strengthen your relationship with that child because all they see is you belittling them. They don't see that you're trying to protect them. They don't think they need protecting. So I think that that's very important when you're looking at the bigger picture of Frank and Bree's relationship. Like she said, we had a plan. They're making plans for the future. And I think that is one of the huge repercussions of Frank and Claire's divorce and that news is that 
Brie had a safe space in her head where everything was perfect. And I can identify with that as a, as a child whose parents divorced um, in their late teens, early 20s, around that same period in your life. And it is, it's, it's like the floors ripped out from underneath you. And I know that all kids, regardless of their age, feel that way a lot of times. And yeah, my parents fought, but a lot of the times it was behind closed doors and they didn't think that their kid could hear or whatever. And we get that scene with Brie laying in bed, listening to Claire and Frank arguing downstairs. And then she rolls over and puts her pillow over her head. I felt that so much. Like I felt so terrible for Brie, but also when Frank said, this can't come at entirely as a surprise to you. And Brie turns and looks at him and says, well, it does. And I get that. I got that because she's in such denial over it. I mean, yes, she knew that her parents fought, but she didn't know any better. She thought, oh, it's just what parents do and it's okay. Everything will be okay in the morning. And it just wasn't. It's easy for you to just lull yourself into this sense of comfort that, oh, it's just the way things are and they're not going to get divorced. And then when they do, it's like, well, it is a surprise because I always just thought this is the way that, that things were worked out, that you guys just yelled at each other and fought. And then eventually you forgave each other and moved on. Like you love each other. I don't understand this. And it's hard for a kid who has never loved anyone, never had their heart broken to understand. And I think it's, it's hard for most adults to admit to themselves that you don't have to take this constant hurt and emotional abuse and heartache. So I think especially back then in, in the 60s that divorce wasn't a thing. And I love how she says, but you're too old for a divorce. Like it's something that young kids do. But clearly, again, Frank has been turning this over, mulling this over for a long time. And he's just now gotten up the courage to do it. And in season three, it makes it look like it's just Sandy, right? That candy Sandy that is driving this forward. And I think that the show in a lot of ways does a great job developing this much like Diana does in the books. It's like layers of an onion. You just keep peeling stuff back and you're realizing that you're seeing things through a completely different lens than you were initially. And I think TV especially is hard to reconcile that. It's easy for you to just think, oh, well, this is how it is. And we're getting all of the facts laid out to us because that's how television works. And as a viewer, you have to feel that way a little bit of the time because otherwise the magic is lost or you feel like you're getting jerked around because you're seeing this person's point of view and then you're you're seeing this person's point of view. And so I think, especially in the case of All Debts Paid, where we get that argument between Frank and Claire and Claire realizes that Frank is planning on leaving her, we're seeing that all through Claire's eyes. And it's a necessary thing to see it through Claire's eyes because otherwise we wouldn't fully understand what drove her to go to Scotland and what drove her to go back to Jamie. So we have to get that. And it's hard for us as viewers to accept the fact that Frank is allowed to be unfaithful. And we get Claire's emotions in that episode because we're seeing it through her eyes in the editing, in the acting, everything. But then one season later, when we come to that same point through someone else's lens, 
we're saying, oh shit. Frank realizes that she goes back to Jamie and he's like, I'm not hanging around for this shit. Like, I'm going to go and find my own small piece of happiness. And if Brie wants to come with me, all the better. So we're seeing what drove him to that decision. And it does make it a little bit more complex. And that's the way life is, right? You don't always see the other person's point of view. But when you do, you're like, oh, well, I guess that makes sense how they reacted then. I think the same can be said for Leary in this episode. I guess when we're talking about the title of this episode, Down the Rabbit Hole, we kind of do go down the rabbit hole a little bit, not just in the manner of speaking that we're learning all about the the rabbit hole of time travel and that Bree and Roger have gone down that that path in the literal sense we can take it that way but we also go down the figurative rabbit hole of seeing things from other people's perspectives you've got two people that you're not necessarily a default setting to see how they see things and then we get to look at things from frank's perspective from leary's perspective and this episode perhaps more than any other episode made me see just for a second, like a millisecond. I don't like the woman, okay? And I don't think anybody does because I think she's an evil bitch. But just for a second, I was able to see what Jamie saw in her. And I think that was probably the intent of this storyline more than anything because people were pissed about the whole season three thing and how it was written. I'm still pissed about it, okay? it's That's not going away. You hear me, Outlander creators. I'm still pissed about how you handled the season three Leary-Claire debacle. There's no freaking way that Jamie would have married Leary knowing that Leary tried to kill Claire, okay? There's just no way. I'm not forgiving you for that boo-boo. However, what I'm saying is that Leary is a good mother, I think, 99.9% of the time, she has a kind soul. She nurtures people. She took a complete stranger into her house and fed and clothed them and gave them a warm place to sleep. And not a lot of people can say that they would do that for someone. Someone they didn't know or that nobody that they knew knew. I mean, honestly, that speaks a lot to her character. It just so happens that we know what she's done in the past. And even in the books, Claire was ready to forgive that because Leary was 16 and, you know, you don't always know the repercussions of your actions when you're that young. But like I said, 99.9% of the time, I think Leary is probably a decent person. But just that 1%, like 0.1%, Claire brings out something in Leary that is just dark. It's so dark and evil, and I would call it a jealous streak, but honestly, I think it's more than that. I mean, like, literally, the second that Leary found out that Brianna was in any way related to Claire, it's like a switch flipped. It was remarkable. She just went from being a perfectly nice person to, oh my god, I'm gonna try to manipulate this person into thinking that Jamie Fraser is an evil bastard and that her mother is a witch. And that people are talking about her and make her feel insecure. Like, what the hell did Brie ever do to Leary? She's got herself trapped in this paranoid little circle where she thinks everybody in that clan is out to get her. And so I think that there's something about Claire and there's something about the Frasers that really just 
bring out Larry's cuckoo for Cocoa Puff side. Because clearly she's a good mother. She loves her daughters. And I understood Leary in this episode. And I think that that drives a lot of book readers bonkers because we're not meant to understand Leary, okay? Um, she's not a character that's supposed to be relatable and that you're supposed to feel bad for. And the fact that the, the show creators wasted time on that is really frustrating. I understand that completely because, like I said, book four was my favorite book of the series and a humongous chunk of it was cut for stuff like this. So I understand the frustration there. But when you're looking at it from a show watcher's point of view, it really was a kind of a genius way to develop some of your minor characters. And when you're looking at uh, actors that are willing to come back and play bigger roles and recurring roles, versus your more developed actors from previous seasons that have either had other opportunities or don't want to come back, you have to take what you're given, right? You don't want to have to completely get a new cast of characters every season. So I understand why they chose to have Leary be a more developed character, but still, you know, it is kind of frustrating. I understand it. But one thing that I actually found pretty fascinating overall about Leary's development is, like I said, we see this with Frank and Brie, is whenever you see something through someone else's eyes, it's really kind of amazing how you begin to understand other people's actions in a completely different light. And we really see that with Leary, because she's telling Brie, she said, well, this woman came in and stole my husband. And she's talking about how when they were young, Jamie would have done anything for her and that he took a beating for her when she was a young lass and that he would steal kisses from her whenever he could. Obviously, we see that through Jamie and Claire's eyes the first time around. And we know that Jamie took pity on her. He did it for Mrs. Fitz. He didn't do it for Leary whenever he took that beating. As for stealing kisses, I mean, in my opinion, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, he may have had a fondness for her, but it definitely was not love. And Leary, through the eyes of a young 16-year-old, thought that he was in love with her, and that thought has never changed. She's had it in her head all this time that Claire came and stole Jamie from her and bewitched him, and that, yeah, he doesn't love her anymore because Claire cast a spell on him to make Leary invisible. It's not that Jamie never felt that way. And you see it when Bree says, Jamie Fraser never loved you. Something in her snapped. And it's not because it wasn't true. It's because she doesn't believe it was true. So yeah, what a complex bit of television we have to unpack this episode. But let me tell you, probably one thing that I noticed more than anything else. And it's not that I hadn't ever noticed it before, but I was just like, aw, is how sweet little Joni is. She's such a sweet little girl. And um, she is such a good character. She's so sweet and loving and such a, a kind soul. So I really like her character. I feel like the little girl that they got to play her is really, really good. And yeah, I'm looking forward to maybe exploring her character a little bit. There is a novella that Diana Gabaldon wrote where she's one of the primary characters in it. I don't know if it's considered a novella or a short story, but yeah, it's definitely one of those that 
if you get a chance to read it, it's definitely interesting. But whenever I was looking at Joan and Bree in the garden and they were sitting there head to head and working in the garden and talking about Jamie, I kind of had this flashback to when Claire just had this absolute look of horror on her face when she saw Joan and she's accusing Jamie of being her father and saying, oh, well, the little girl with the red hair, you're saying she's not yours. And Jamie makes the smart ass comment. Well, I'm not the only redheaded man in Scotland, Claire. <laughs> um, but anyway, seeing them head to head like that, I easily got how Claire kind of drew that conclusion because they really do look like they could be two sisters. And I guess legally speaking, they are sisters. I mean, Jamie raised Joan for a good portion of her life, just and Jamie is Bree's biological father. So um, I guess if you want to draw the convoluted lines, they are technically sisters of a sort. But I, uh, I had that little flash. So I thought I'd mention it to you guys on the off chance that you guys hadn't hadn't had that thought. Because I do have these random thoughts sometimes. And I just need to tell people about it, okay? And my last thing that I want to chat about just real briefly is Roger's journey. Although, you know, what you can call a journey for five scenes that he was in. All of this was taken directly out of the books. And I think really the only reason that they put it in there at all was because there had to be some link drawn between Roger being back in the future and Roger being in the past when everything catches up in Wilmington next episode. There had to be that explanation there. And I literally think that is the only reason that we see what we see. Uh, that and we also have to get the update on Stephen Bonnet so that everybody is up to date on how much of an evil bastard he is, except for Brie, um, which she'll find out shortly, unfortunately. The one thing that I really question so much is and I maybe you guys can shoot me an email at the files at gmail.com with what you think or drop it in the comments of this episode post. But I want to know whether you think challenging Bonnet's authority was ill-advised or downright stupid. Because Roger didn't technically know Bonnet and what he's capable of. And he comes from the 20th century where it's not uncommon to challenge someone's authority. He doesn't know that Stephen Bonnet is a sociopath who could just as easily cut his head off as listen to him and take his advice. So I think it was probably ill-advised because, I mean, you have to be able to get the weird vibes off this guy. And I think Roger does because he's clearly afraid of him. And by this point in time, he has probably heard the stories from the other sailors that he's with. But holy crap, does Ed Spillier's play Unhinged really, really creepily well. He creeps me out when I watch him. And when he was telling the story to Roger of when he almost died and was almost sacrificed for the foundation, lest the earth tremble and the walls collapse, I was scared for Roger. <laughs> the way that Ed just like widens his eyes and kind of literally looks unhinged. He does it so well. And it made me wonder, I was like, any chance that Stephen Bonnet could like have syphilis or some other mind melting disease? Because I know he doesn't because obviously like Brie would have syphilis later. And I just, I kind of read that portion of the fiery cross um, where Claire and Brie talk about that. But yeah, it just makes you wonder. 
really does. Like maybe when they whacked him on the head, they knocked a few screws loose. That's that's the only thing that I can come up with. Because um, from the story that he tells, I mean, he seems like he was a pretty normal guy there at the beginning of his life. And so maybe he had some brain damage that kind of just, you know, it's not unheard of. Traumatic brain injuries really change people. So that would be an interesting angle to explore for, for sure. I think another reason that we have all of this stuff on the Gloriana is to meet Morag McKenzie. Because this is all something that will come to fruition later in season five. And I won't talk about that for those of you that haven't seen season five. Um, because I know it's not available on Netflix and a lot of you probably don't have Stars subscriptions. But this will come into the story later on. And so it was very important that this got included for Roger to meet Morag and Little Jimmy. Who ended up being his, I don't know, what is it, six or seven times great grandmother and whatever. And he doesn't know that at the moment, I don't think. Or he might know that. I don't know. I'm done rambling about that. Sorry. But anyway, yes, they're his relatives a few generations back. And he might know that actually, because he gives her a little look. So I think he might know that. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Moving on. But yes, that was very important to the future plot of this show. So if you're wondering why the hell this random chick is being thrown into this, and um, trust me, there will be answers forthcoming as soon as season five hits Netflix, or as soon as you guys subscribe to start and watch season five, whichever you prefer. Alrighty, well, I think that about sums up my analysis of down the rabbit hole. However, a few closing remarks. I have performance of the episode, which I had to give to Tobias Menzies because I miss him, guys. I miss him so much. Um, he recently received an Emmy for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Prince Philip in The Crown, which if you guys haven't seen it and you like historical fiction, I highly recommend. It is so good, guys. Especially seasons three and four, where Olivia Coleman plays the queen and Tobias Menzies plays Prince Philip. It's really great. And apparently other people thought so as well because it won. It like cleaned house at the Emmys. So I was so proud of Mr. Tobias. He did a fantastic job and he so deserved it. And then of course, for my honorable mention, I had to do Ed Spaliers because as I said, he is so great. Like he plays unhinged so well. He did such a great job and made it so believable. And man, if Roger wasn't shitting his pants by the end of that conversation where he very clearly was knocking on death's door with this crap, like I get it. He wanted to save Morag and if he hadn't, he wouldn't exist because his six times great grandfather would have been thrown into the ocean. So there's that piece of little tidbit there for you to ponder over. That's kind of crazy. And Ed Spleer's thrillingly crazy as well. So final thing of the day would be my quote of the episode, which I was feeling pretty uneasy about this. Normally the quote of the episode kind of smacks me in the face and I'm like, Yes, that's going to be my quote of the episode. But we were nearing the end and I was like, oh, uh, well, I don't know if I'm going to have a quote of the episode. And then there it was right in front of me. It's the line that when Frank is talking to Bree in the car and uh, he says, a thousand years ago, your mother and I had a plan as well. But sometimes life takes unexpected turns. And when it does, you know what we do? We soldier on. 
I love that line. And I think that we could all be, we could all stand being told that a little bit. Um, sometimes if these things that happen to us feel like the end of the world and the last thing that we want to hear is that we need to suck it up and and move on to greener pastures. But at the end of the day, it's true. Like life keeps going and we need to go with it. So I love that he told her that and that that's something that stuck with her through all this time because whenever Bree gets out of the car after he's like, well, please come with me to England and blah, blah, blah. She's like, I have to go. And he says, I love you. And she doesn't say anything and she just slams the door. Having that be the last interaction that you have with one of the people you love most in this world cannot be something you easily bear. And I'm sure she has a lot of regrets about how she handled that. But also, I think deep down, she knows that he loves her and that he understood her anger in that moment. I mean, you can always wonder what if. And we get that scene where. Brie is at Frank's grave and she said, if I had just agreed to go to England with you, we probably would have gone out celebrating and you never would have had the accident. And she doesn't know that that's true. I mean, he could have very well still ended up in a car accident, only she could have been with him and they both could have died. So we don't know for sure that that would have happened. But I feel like you're always running the scenarios through your head over and over again, looking for something that you could have done different, something that you would have changed the outcome that you didn't want. I think that it was interesting to see that because I think it does give a little bit of more context into who Brie is as a person and why she behaves the way that she does sometimes. I think that she's scared of losing more people in her life. So yeah, just think about that. Next time something weirdo happens and she overreacts, just think about the fact that she lost her father and it was awful and she didn't want to lose someone else close to her too. So with those parting words, I'm going to close the door on down the rabbit hole. But guys, I've been gone for like two months and a lot of stuff has happened. So I'm going to try to break it down. I don't have a comprehensive list of everything that has happened, but Recently, something that's going on is that, like I said, Tobias Menzies won Best Supporting Actor for the Emmys for his role in The Crown. We also have the new Clanlands Almanac that Sam and Graham are putting out. It has a release date of November 8th, something like that. Don't quote me on that. But yes, it's coming out at the beginning of November before the release of Diana's new book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone, which comes out on November 23rd. And I do know that one. So there's that. Let's see what else. This is pure conjecture, but I kind of did the math along with some of my friends. And we're pretty sure that season six of Outlander is going to premiere on February 13th. That is the day before Valentine's Day, obviously. Um, but it's also a Sunday. So we're pretty sure that it's going to premiere on February 13th because Stars is doing a rewatch right now. And that's kind of how it all adds up for the premiere to be on that date. New York Comic Con this year is going to have an Outlander panel. It's sold out. So yeah, if you're like me on the outside looking in, we're just hoping and praying for an online streaming for the panel because guys, I really, really just can't wait to see what's going to happen. 
I am pretty sure that they're going to release a trailer at New York Comic Con, which is in a few short weeks, like two weeks away. So lots to look forward to there. Sam Hewen is actually going to be at Chicago Wizard World on October 16th. So if you have not purchased your tickets and you live in the Midwest, you can purchase tickets there. I am planning on going. So if any of you would like to meet up, just shoot me an email or a direct message through the Sassanac Files social media. But yeah, hoping to do that, although prices are pretty steep. So that may hinder a lot of people. I feel like they're more steep than they were pre-COVID. And I think that's probably because they have a more limited amount of tickets that they can sell. All of the photo packages with Sam are already sold out. That was part of a $1,500 platinum package. And I had a bit of a heart attack when I saw that price. I was like, yeah, I'm not paying that much. He is just a person. Like, I get it. He's gorgeous. And he's probably one of the nicest people on planet Earth. But he is just a person. And I can't justify paying $1,500 for a picture and a little, a little meet and greet that's going to last like 30 minutes. However, um, there are still packages left with autographs. I think that's the gold package. That's like 350 US dollars. And then of course there are general admission tickets just for the platform, which I live within driving distance of Chicago. So I may just do that. I have a friend that's wanting to go as well. So um, if you are going to Chicago Wizard World and you're going to be there on Saturday, give me a shout on social media and we'll see if we can have a Sassanac Files get together. That would be fun. I think that's about all I have on the Outlander front. Like I said, hoping for a trailer super soon. We keep getting all of these new stills dropped and I'm like, oh my goodness, stop teasing me like that. Oh, yes. So the real reason, I'm sure that it was a partial reason that season six got cut short to six episodes because things were super complicated with COVID. I understand that, but... One of the bigger reasons is that our leading lady, Katrina Balf, had a little secret she was keeping. She was pregnant throughout the filming of season six and now has a little boy, which I'm sure is absolutely beautiful. Congratulations to her and her husband. And yes, they are going to be doing an extended season seven. So all's well that ends well. And I can't wait. And then, of course, I recently just had my trip to Scotland which was amazing. And if you guys are wanting more details on that, I did nightly debriefs while I was there through my group TSF Obsassinax on Facebook. I did lives every night and they lasted for about 30 minutes. So if you want to know what I did, some of the things that I thought were cool, some of the things that I learned that you should know before you go to Scotland or the UK in general, then please head over and check that out. Just make sure you fill out all three of the admission questions and agree to follow the rules or your application will be denied. So look forward to seeing you guys interacting with everyone on the TSF Obsassinax page. It's a super fun group and any live podcast that I do will live stream there first before they're uploaded to all the different podcast platforms. So with all of that out of the way, I'm going to sign off for this week. Next week, I'll be back to chat 408 Wilmington. And until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye.